Well, we can go ahead and get going then. Um, this, I'm merging two weeks into one because uh, you all were nice enough to let me uh, skip last week. <laughs> uh, but it was very stressful, uh, the move. Uh, we didn't have hot water in our house until yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No. So they replaced the hot water heater the day before we moved in, but then it wasn't working. And then... Anyways, it ended up just being one thing after another, but we're in and we're settled now for the most part. I just have a lot of boxes to unpack. Um, so this will be our final session like this uh, for, the, for the class. Uh, next Wednesday night is the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. And so it's not only a good day to have a, a Mass, but we'll do a guided Eucharist, so it'll be instructed. So we'll talk through the service as we go, explain why we do what we do and all that. Um, if after we finish tonight and next week, uh, confirmation is something that you're interested in when the bishop is here, then just, no pun intended, confirm that with me, um, if that's something that you're, you're interested in. So tonight I wanted to pair two things together. Partly it's by accident, just because we missed last week, but partly because these two things are very related, which is, uh, Anglican theology... Uh, how we do theology as Anglicans, and spirituality, how we live our lives as Anglicans. And I wanted to start by looking at two pictures. Uh, these are both of the Annunciation to the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, which, of course, was a feast day that we celebrated somewhat recently. Um, and uh, one is Solario's painting, the one on the left, 1506. I kind of cut it off at the bottom there. The one on the right is da Vinci's uh, painting, um, and uh, so there are some things that are similar and some things that are different. Um, what, are so, what are some things that you notice about the painting? Mary's uh, way overdressed. <laughs> She's overdressed, okay. And, and, and a much uh, more luxurious setting than... Yes, that is true. From what we can tell, Mary would have been a, probably a poor, you know, somewhat rural uh, young girl. But here she looks like a noble woman, yeah. basically. That's what I meant by overdressed. Yep, yep, yep. And she's, and she's wearing more or less the same outfit. You're right, and both. She's got her blue and her gold and her per but, pinkish, reddish. But she looks a lot older than 13. She does. She does look older. Like indoor and outdoor. Indoor and outdoor, yep. One on the left is indoor, one on the right is outdoor. And the one on the left, at least from this distance, it looks like... She's not looking at the angel, and the one on the right, she is. Yes, you're right. There are halos on Da Vinci's and no halos on mm. the other guys. You're right. Yes, yes. The, the not looking is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's like she's pondering on the one. Yeah, yeah. Pondering, or even maybe uh, it's a sign of humility, too, you know, not, yeah, not looking. But yeah, pon pondering would go along with that. We know she pondered these things in her heart later. Yeah, you couldn't look at, at God in the face, so... Yes. <laughs> Maybe she just didn't want to fry. And an angel's hand position is different. It is. Actually, it's interesting because on the, on the left, Solario, she's got the two fingers out, mm -hmm. and then in the right, the angel's got the fingers out, which is sort of a Trinitarian thing you know when they are holding like that so that's kind of interesting they swap hand positions trees in the background on one and trees in, mm. on the photo in, or the painting I should say in the background on the other yep 
I'm assuming that those trees reflect the setting that they were painted in. You know, the paint they tell us more about the painter than the story. So, what is Mary doing? She's sitting. We already said she won't look up in the one, or she's not looking up in the one. What is her other hand doing, or what is it on? It might be hard, yeah. In both, there's a book. And it's easier to tell on the left. On the right, she's got a, almost like this, a, a, a stand, and she's got the book open on the stand. And there's a veil that's, or, or almost like a frontal. I mean, really, it almost looks like an altar, uh, doesn't it? The, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very interesting. So she's got the book open, and the tradition that sprung up in art and sort of in legend is that prior to the Annunciation, uh, the angel basically interrupted her as she was studying. As she was studying. And then, of course, this is where the angel tells her she'll be with child. And she says, let it be done to me according to thy word. Actually, first she asks, how can this be? I was talking about this with another priest today, actually, and he made the point that um, she knows how to ask the right question. <laughs> she asks a good question there. How can this be? I've not been with a man. Um, and then the, the angel informs her how it's going to work, um, though he's hardly as specific as you would kind of want him to if you were in that situation, I would think. <laughs> And, um, and Mary then uh, assents her fiat, uh, let it be done to me according to thy will, which really becomes the model for all Christians, right? There's a certain degree to which God uh, towards us is uh, masculine and that he is the initiator, and we as the Christian are feminine and that we receive um, what he is offering us. Um, so anyway, so I just find it very interesting that this story that is so tied to the Christian life in that let it be done to me according to thy will really is the theme of a, Christian, a Christian's life is so tied to her study. Um, and I think that the two are very interconnected. The theology, she's studying, she's learning, she's pursuing truth, and it's through that study or, or related to that study that she then assents to what God has for her. So something kind of interesting to, to think about, I think. But would she have been studying? Uh, in real life, uh, maybe not. Uh, I mean, whether she could read is, is a question, you know. Um, I mean, women in the ancient world were taught to read at a lesser rate than men, and in particular, poor women probably wouldn't have been taught to read. So perhaps she wasn't studying uh, in a physical book. Maybe she was thinking or praying or something like this, but... Um, but that's the tradition that developed, and I, I do think it's, a, it's an interesting one. So, get this to work. There we go. So tonight, I want to talk about how we do theology as Anglicans and then how we live as Anglicans. Um, we've talked previously about uh, facets of our worship, uh, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the sacraments, the church and its calendar. But tonight, I think it's important to talk about how we do theology. Um, that is, when an issue comes up, whether it's an issue based on a tough biblical passage or uh, a, a sort of obscure question, um, whatever it is, um, what is, how is, how 
does an Anglican think through those issues? And building off of that, then, I think it's important to talk about Anglican spirituality, uh, which is how do we live out the faith that we have received? Um, And these two things are very connected to one another. Um, Now, in one sense, there's not really an answer to either of these questions. How do you do Anglican theology and how do you live as an Anglican? Um, Because if you look at the wide range of things that pass as Anglicanism today, you can find different ways to answer both of these questions. Most Episcopal churches are probably not going to think exactly like we do. um, And similarly, uh, we're not going to think the same way that the ACNA church down the street does. And that's okay. I'm not saying that, um, that we're always right and they're always wrong, uh, just that there is a, a wide diversity within Anglicanism. And so coming up with a singular answer is going to be really hard. However, I think the goal tonight is not to summarize or describe how other people ident- who identify as Anglicans do theology, but to prescribe how, based on our Anglican and broader Catholic heritage, we ought to do theology. So Probably uh, the question is then what are different ways of doing theology, um, which is a pretty important question. Um, and you have a really a range, a spectrum of, a spectrum of views, right? You have uh, the sort of classically reformed and uh, tradition, which emphasizes sola scriptura. We do theology through scripture alone. Uh, so rather than looking to the tradition um, to inform their theology – uh, it's based on pretty much what the Bible says. Um, there's some truth in this, of course, but the question of how do we interpret the scriptures is kind of the perennial problem uh, in these circles. Uh, how do you know you've gotten your interpretation correct? This is a tricky question. Um, of course, I guess the answer would be uh, because the Bible says, but then, you know, you run into a number of problems. Uh Roman Catholics, or well, evangelicals, you could add, uh, kind of build off of that reformed uh, saying of sola scriptura, but I would argue that evangelicals add the sort of extra element of experience. They're very experiential in their theology. Um, you kind of get, get this if you go to an evangelical church. You know, we talked about this last week, but the idea of, of sort of, uh, you know, emotional highs being really important and you know, I have to have a born-again experience, you know, these kind of things become very popular in evangelical circles. Um, But they would ground a lot of what they do in the scriptures, or at least they would try to. Roman Catholicism then sort of stands at at another end of the spectrum. Roman Catholics obviously believe the scriptures are authoritative and that they're divinely inspired. In fact, they've written a number of good papal encyclicals and other documents um, about the role of the scriptures and the life of the church and the believer Um, So there's a lot to come in there. Uh, Roman Catholics obviously draw heavily from the tradition as well. Um, So it's not a sola scriptura, but rather the scriptures plus the tradition. And then on top of the tradition of the church that the church has received, the Catholic Church believes that the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church is infallible. Um, So the Bible is their authority. So is the tradition so is the magisterium of the Catholic Church. This is why the Pope can, though he doesn't do it very often, I think he's only done it three or four times, speak um, ex cathedra, which means when he speaks, he's speaking with sort of the full authority of the church. Um, and so uh, many Catholics would say he speak, when he does that, he speaks uh, um, infallibly. He can't err. He can't make a mistake. Um, finally, the orthodox view 
uh, they're a little bit different. Uh, the Orthodox would tell you they've never changed in 2,000 years. Um, this is maybe a little bit overblown. Um, but they heavily emphasize scripture and tradition. They don't have a magisterium the same way that Roman Catholicism does. There's no pope for them to appeal to, um, which sometimes causes a bunch of problems. For example, within the past decade, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church both excommunicated each other over political issues. You remember when Russia uh, was invading Crimea and stuff. That caused a lot of tension between the two churches, and there's no sort of higher, you know, at least in Catholicism, you have a pope. When two churches disagree, you go to the pope, and the pope says, okay, we're going to do it this way. Uh, that just doesn't exist in Orthodoxy. It doesn't really exist in Anglicanism either. Isn't there a patriarch? Well, there is, there is an ecumenical patriarch who, yes, is sort of a figurehead, but it's kind of like our bishops. Like Bishop Chad is the presiding bishop of the Anglican province of America, but he can't just do whatever he wants. He can't speak ex cathedra. So we might go to him to solve certain problems within the diocese, but he doesn't carry the whole weight of the APA when he writes something, for example. He can't just infallibly say X, Y, or Z, you know. Um, so it's similar to the, how the Orthodox think about the ecumenical patriarch. Um, though the, the current ecumenical patriarch is good friends with the Pope, uh, current Pope, which is nice to see that they're getting along um, because it would be nice, like we pray, uh, that we all may be one. Uh, so anyway, so this is kind of the range of how you do theology, different views, and, and each one has its own strengths and its own weaknesses. Anglicanism has uh, a kind of amalgamation of or permutation of these views, um, and that is uh, sometimes expressed in, a, in the analogy of a three-legged stool. Um, so, uh, so Richard Hooker is the guy that tends to be uh, tends to be credited with the three-legged stool. He didn't use that phraseology, but um, he was an English uh, reformer who lived from 1554 to 1600, um, and he was really instrumental in setting the trajectory of the Church of England. We talked about, uh, I think, the first week about how the English Reformation tried to walk a really thin line between. Uh, Rome on the one hand and uh, and radical Protestantism on the other. And so they retained certain things that were pretty Catholic and they also embraced certain things that were pretty uh, Protestant. And so uh, so Hooker really is one of those theologians who he, he really didn't like the Puritans. Good for him. They got what was coming to them. Um, and then also uh, he didn't like Roman Catholicism, so he would engage in debates and things, uh, polemical debates with Catholic theologians. Um, so the three legs in the stool of Anglican theology, uh, as a kind of rude summary of, of Hooker's thought, is, th- is scripture, tradition, and reason. Scripture, tradition, and reason. And so he says this here in this paragraph, what scripture doth plainly deliver... To that the first place both of credit and obedience are due. The next whereunto is what any man can necessarily conclude by force of reason. After this the voice of the church succeeded. That which the church by her ecclesiastical authority shall probably think and define to be true or good must in congruity of reason overrule all other inferior judgments whatsoever. So first we consult the scriptures and then we look at reason and tradition. And this is the foundation for what is now called the three-legged stool. Now, one problem with the stool image, I, in my opinion, is that uh, in a stool, uh, weight is evenly distributed to all three legs, right? If you 
Uh, if you lean on the stool and you only put your weight on one leg, then you risk breaking the stool. Um, I don't think from that quote, nor even just if we consider how scripture, tradition, and reason should be related to each other, that we could say all three of them are equally important and share the exact same role. Um, and I don't think Hooker argues that they're equal either. Um, and it's not, not how it works for us. Now, let's start with the scriptures then. Um, so I would say a good term rather than sola scriptura, scripture alone, is something like prima scriptura, which means scripture first. So first we go to the scriptures. Um, now, it's also, it should be noted, Martin Luther, at least for his part of the Reformation, when he used the term sola scriptura, he did not mean that you could only consult the scriptures. Luther actually did draw from a good deal of church history. He liked St. Bernard of Clairvaux, for example. He would quote Bernard. And they would look at scholastics and other uh, theologians throughout the history of the church. So it wasn't like they were saying you can't consult anything outside of the Bible. Um, what Luther meant is that scripture has the sole authority when it comes to issues of salvation. So uh, this really, this view is not entirely foreign to the church. Um, it's not like Luther just came up with it one day. He's, he is, uh, ironically, receiving a tradition um, that he is articulating kind of in his day. So we can go all the way back to Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 220. His writing is some of the earliest Christian writing that we have at least extensively. In fact, uh, his books are over there in the library. Um, he says, We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be ground and pillar of our faith. So the preaching of the apostles became contained in the scriptures, and the scriptures then become a witness of apostolic preaching. So, and that is really significant for all of our faith. This is what St. Paul testifies to in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may complete Equipped for every good work. So here, Paul says not only is scripture from God, but we also use it for teaching. We use it to guide how it is that we should live. It's a good uh, reminder that theology and practice are not unrelated. What we believe and how we behave are often related. Um, we can overdo it on the connection between belief and behavior, but really how we think about something does affect how we behave, and then vice versa, how we behave affects what we believe. A good person who bridges the gap here would be St. Anselm. Reason and uh, Faith and reason are, are related to each other very much, and what we do and what we believe is related. I believe in order to understand, St. Anselm said. We also can look at St. Athanasius, who lived in the third, late third, early fourth century, and he says that the Holy Scriptures, given by the inspiration of God, are themselves sufficient toward the discovery of truth. So, for Athanasius, note that the Scriptures are inspired by God. He doesn't really tell us exactly what that means, other than in some way we can say 
the scriptures have an origin, a divine origin. It's not a, not in a way that would um, overshadow or overrule the human element of the scriptures. Um, Matthew really wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He didn't write it like a robot, you know. Um, there really was a Matthew. His personality is in the book of Matthew, you know. You get this sometimes. Um, some of the writers can be rather funny, um, and, you know, that's their sense of humor coming out, you know. Um, so he doesn't really tell us what inspired. He doesn't give us a fleshed-out definition of inspired, but um, it does mean there is in some way a divine origin, and that divine origin in no way overrules or overshadows the human element. Now, he does say it's sufficient toward the discovery of truth. I don't gather from this quote that he means to say scripture is the only means of discovering truth, but rather that it is the clearest and most complete articulation of the truth. So as as Anglicans, when we're thinking through an issue, the first place we should go is to the scriptures, to the scriptures. And we do this. Our liturgy is absolutely uh, uh, permeated by scripture. I mean, not only do we do the readings at every mass, three readings, plus we've got uh, offertory sentence that usually comes from the psalm, the introit that comes from the psalm, um, you know, the words of institution are straight out of scripture. Um, the daily office has a number of, of, uh, of quotes. You know, there, there are versions, I think, of the prayer book that have been published previously that list all of the, all of the references to scripture there, and you see just how much of it is, uh, is from the scriptures. Now, we do run into a problem, and that is the problem of, of what becomes solo scriptura, uh, which is that, that view of we can only ever consult scripture. Scripture is a text, and just like anything, and really more than just texts need to be interpreted, but texts have to be interpreted, right? Uh, our body language has to be interpreted. Our speech has to be interpreted. Everything is an act of interpretation. We don't always realize it, but we are always interpreting. It's why we might misunderstand. You know, you might perceive someone's body language as being telling you that they're mad at you or something, and they're not really mad at you. That's just kind of how they carry themselves, and you interpret it wrongly. Um, or maybe they are really mad at you, and they just don't want to tell you. <laughs> so everything has to be interpreted. Every text has to be interpreted. And with a text as dense, as complex, as, as historically grounded as the scriptures, you run into a number of interpretation problems, right? I mean, this is why we have so many different traditions. It's because we all, at some level, read the scriptures and we come to different conclusions about what they say. And so we say, well, I can't be in communion with you. And they say, well, I can't be in communion with you. And we all go our separate ways. And then we do it again ad infinitum. You know, um, we keep going. The joke uh, that I like is, uh, is uh, they found a man uh, on an island by himself. He had been there for a decade. And, uh, and he had built some buildings on the beach. And they say, what were those buildings that you built? He goes, well, that was my house. Uh, that was my church. Um, and that was my other church that I went to after I left the first church. <laughs> <laughs> so that we have an interpretation problem, we have to interpret. There are a bunch of different interpretations we could bring forward when we're reading the scriptures. Does not, in my view, mean that we can't understand the Bible it just means that we have to rightly interpret it. St. Paul actually exhorts us to, to rightly divide the word of God. 
And when this is done well, it means that we can understand what God is saying to us. When it's done poorly, however, we end up misunderstanding and possibly worse, we end up misrepresenting God. Because what God says is truth means that misunderstanding can be costly. So we might think of, for example, of how the curse of Canaan in Genesis chapter 9, when Ham's son Canaan is cursed by Noah to be a servant or a slave to his brothers, was misinterpreted by people in the American South to be talking about Africans to therefore justify the practice of chattel slavery. This is an abominable interpretation, right? Um, if you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, you, you encounter a minister who's clearly arguing for this interpretation, and it's really, really bad. Um, similarly, some of the conquest narratives in Joshua, where the people go in and, um, and fight in the land, fight the Canaanites, um, they were used by Puritans, early Puritans and American settlers, to talk about the Native Americans and to justify violence towards Native Americans. So obviously, uh, we have to be very careful, um, because not only in some of these instances are the violences allowed or justified, they are actually prescribed. Hey, look at what Genesis 9 says about these descendants. That's them. We better... Fulfill Genesis 9. You know, we have an obligation, a duty. Ugh. So we have to be careful. We can't misunderstand. Um, and the risk of misunderstanding increases at a exponential rate the more that we interpret the text purely as individuals, especially given our chronological distance, our uh, our cultural distance, our linguistic dis- distance, all these distances from the original context in which the scriptures were produced and written. So we have the text, but as individuals, we are capable of grave misunderstanding. Um, now, some people, of course, will say, well, the Holy Spirit will tell me what the scriptures say here. Um, and this is good because we should ask the Holy Spirit for illumination. But we can't claim that our interpretation is definitively directed from the Holy Spirit as an individual for a number of reasons. Primarily, we should have some epistemic humility, right? There are really good Christians who often, when we read a passage, might disagree with us on something. So just starting from a place of some sort of humility is not a bad thing. We have to be careful with the scriptures. And of course... um, you know, one of the aspects of the Reformation was let's translate the Bible into the vernacular. It was all in Latin. Nobody speaks or reads Latin anymore. Let's translate it into German and to English and to French and to Spanish, etc. And um, the Catholic Church at first resisted this impulse. Um, there were some uh, scriptures that had been translated into vernaculars, but it wasn't a super common practice. And the reason that they weren't was not necessarily, though you could make the argument in some places maybe it was, was not necessarily to keep uh, people from knowing what the scripture said or to keep them ignorant on purpose, but rather their goal, I think in at least the most charitable reason, was to protect the scriptures from being misinterpreted by people who didn't have the uh, proper training to read them. It has already been translated several times by the time it got to be Latin. That's true, too. Right, right. It did go through different uh, different iterations, absolutely. Um, 
And of course, this is especially true for the medievals when you have a very strong view of the magisterium and the papacy, etc. Um, you don't need, uh, you know, farmer so and so to read the text because you know, he doesn't know as much as the pope does, at least in theory. So this is another area where Anglicans, I think, try to walk a, a line between two extremes: between the extreme of private interpretation and the extreme of. Uh, keeping the scripture so far removed from the life of the individual person, parishioner in the pew. Um, so, what, so what this means is uh, the appeal to tradition is very important for Anglicans. Um, what the church has said about the text previously, said about theological issues, matters a great deal. But, but you might also ask, what does tradition really mean? Because tradition is a big word, especially when we're talking about 2,000 years of Christian tradition. Are we talking about every church father that's ever written? Are we talking about only church fathers from the West versus the East uh, or vice versa? You know, what do we mean? So I think from an Anglican perspective, there are kind of three tiers of tradition that we look to. And, and each one has more authority than the, the next. So first, we look at the official teaching of the undivided church. We talked in the first week about how 1054 marked the schism between East and West. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicated the Orthodox. The Orthodox excommunicated the Roman Catholic Church. But before that, there wasn't a question. You wouldn't ask someone, are you Roman Catholic or Orthodox? Before 1054, you were one church, um, and you would basically ask, are you part of the, Orthodox, you know, the Catholic Church, or are you, you know, some heretical schism uh, group? And so during this time period, the first thousand years of the church, we get a number of statements that the whole church agrees to. The seven ecumenical councils, the Nicene Creed, which comes from the councils, the Chalcedonian definition. All these things are received by the whole church. So even to this day, for the most part, we all agree on the basics, you know, you can go to an Orthodox church, uh, an Anglican church, a Roman Catholic church, and we will all acknowledge the Chalcedonian definition. We'll say the same creed for the most part. Uh, We disagree on one little line in the creed, but that's okay. Um, So we start there. Everything that we do has to be in accordance with the official teaching of the undivided church. So if, you know, if someone comes to me and they, uh, they have an opinion on a particular kind of minor issue, uh, you know, when was the date of the Exodus? Was it in the 15th century or the 13th century? I don't care. It's great. We, you know, I mean, we can have the conversation. It's, it's fine. But it's not important, uh, ultimately. Uh, if, however, they say, you know, I was reading the Bible, and it seems like Jesus was created by God um, rather than being, you know, eternally God, then we have a real problem because however they're reading the scripture is not in accordance with the official teaching of the undivided church. They have become heretical. Um, probably unknowingly, and so it would be our job to get them back into reading the right way. The second layer of tradition I think we could appeal to is the writings of the church fathers themselves. Now, there's a lot of writings of church fathers. They don't always agree amongst themselves, so we have to be careful here, um, and you, you hear this sometimes among uh, especially cage-stage converts to Catholicism or Anglicanism or Orthodoxy. They'll say, the fathers say... And they'll say something, you know, whatever their opinion is on an issue. And it's no different than how a fundamentalist would say, the Bible clearly teaches. You know, it's the same thing. It's just a slightly different way of phrasing it. Um, but the church fathers do have a really, uh, a really wonderful 
insight into the traditions of the church. For example, Irenaeus, who we just talked about, had been trained by Polycarp. Polycarp, we know, was a disciple of the disciple John, the evangelist. So we have a very close connection to the original apostles and the, uh, and the original church um, there in Irenaeus. So it's important, I think, to consult him, to be familiar with what he said. Um, and we have other kind of uh, uh, complete mind-shifting uh, figures throughout the church who we should be familiar with. We should know about St. Augustine of Hippo, um, especially if we're Western Christians because we, we inherit a lot from him. Um, we should know about St. Anselm of Canterbury. We should know about, um, about St. John Chrysostom. You know, these are people who, have, who are real giants in the faith who have a great understanding of the faith as it has been passed down to us. And so we can engage them in conversations. We don't have to agree with every single thing they say, but we can consult them and converse back and forth with them. And then finally, uh, after we have gone through the official teachings, the writings of the fathers, we can look at specifically the Western tradition, which really does begin before this East-West schism, probably back to someone like Augustine. Um, and, uh, and we can look at how our tradition has spoken um, on various issues. So we look at the larger Western tradition, which would include our Roman Catholic uh, heritage, but also we look specifically at the Anglican stream. What does the prayer book say? What do the uh, articles say? What does the missal say? All these kind of things we can, we can uh, use as we're doing theology as well. So these three tiers kind of help us. And it also should be noted that tradition is affirmed as an important thing for us in the scriptures. So if we follow our own advice and start with scripture, we get exhortation to inhabit the faith that is historic. So we might, uh, we might look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So St. Paul is giving them traditions that they are to house. And these traditions are not in the scriptures proper. You know, these are extra things he's taught them. And so you, these communities were expected to, um, to use these traditions. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 3, um, I'm partial to the book of Jude, as you might imagine. Uh, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. There's this kind of deposit of faith that the church has received. Now, a lot of church history is us trying to extrapolate based on what's been given to us. This is why we have to have councils and creeds and things like that. But all of it is based on what we have gotten. So you can almost think of it as the acorn, right? The acorn is planted, it's watered, and then it becomes a tree and it grows. And it has to go through some painful processes in order to become the tree that it's meant to be. But, um, but this is very much uh, what the tradition does over space and time. Also, uh, the 39 Articles, Article 20, says that the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. And I think this is actually a really helpful quote. I know I'm sometimes critical of the articles, but this is not a bad article in my opinion. I think it's very good. Um, the church has authority. They can tell us 
what rites and ceremonies we're going to do, what liturgies we're going to do, how we're going to do them. They can, make, uh, they can rule in uh, controversies of the faith, church councils and things like that. Um, but there are parameters that the church has to stay within as they're making judgments and making decisions about how we worship and, and the things that we do in worship. And namely, that is that we cannot directly contradict anything that's in the scriptures, and we can't, we can't use one part of scripture to pit against another part of scripture in order to justify our agenda, which I think is fair. <laughs> um, so in order to do so, yeah, we can't, we can't contradict scripture. Uh, we, can't, we, can't, we can't emphasize one part of scripture at the expense of another. Was, uh, was that directly in response to like, Luther's interpretation of James? Hmm, good question. Yeah, the context there is Luther called James a book of straw because he didn't like its emphasis on works. It says by, by, you know, by works you're saved, not by faith alone. And so Luther, who was big on faith alone, was like, well, I don't like that. So it's not – and, and he's using – in First in Corinthians, St. Paul talks about our works. And he says some of our works are hay and stubble and they get burned off. And then other works are like precious jewels. So his argument was a book like James is like the hay and straw in that it's part of Scripture, though he did try and take it out of his translation of the Bible at one point. Some friends talked him into putting it back in. And he did. Um, uh, but, uh, but a book like Romans is this really enduring, theologically brilliant book. And so w- basically he'd say, it's not that you can't read James. It's that you should spend more time reading Romans, which Romans would take more time to read anyways, just because of how complex it is. So I don't know. I don't think this article is a response to Luther, probably because all of the articles except for the ones on the Eucharist are basically plagiarized Lutheran articles. Yeah, um, and I actually, I actually do think Luther would adhere to that statement. I think his argument would be James is one of those books that's always been kind of on the edge. He also didn't like Revelation and a few other books too. He also didn't like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, so again, we got to be careful when we make private judgments. Um, those books are in the canon, and so they matter. And that is probably another thing about tradition too, uh, that's important to remember. The scriptures are written for a community of people, not for individuals. They are written for the church. The Bible is the church's book. It's not my book at the expense of it being the church's book. It's my book by transitive property because I'm a part of the church. But it's not mine to do with as I please because there's a whole community. Just like Israel, right? This is the point that Israel has throughout their history. They have the scriptures and they as a community have to wrestle with what does it mean to follow the law. And they do that in various circumstances, right? There's a way they follow the law in the wilderness. There's a way they follow the law when they settle in the land. There's a way they have to extrapolate what the law is when they're exiled. There's a way they have to follow the law when there's no temple to offer sacrifices in, right? They're always having to debate and, and figure out amongst themselves kind of what's going on with, uh, with the text. And the church has to do the same thing. This is why the apostles are the ones who are given the ability and authority to bind and loose, which is rabbinical terminology 
for determining how a law would be applied in a situation in a given situation. To bind would be to make it strict. You have heard it said, don't drive 45 miles, don't drive over 45 miles per hour. But I say, don't drive over 40 miles per hour, lest you end up driving 40, over 45 miles per hour. Um, or they could lose. They could say, hey, you know that verse in Deuteronomy about, or maybe numbers, about how every house has to have a parapet built around the top of it? We don't have to do that anymore because we live in apartments or single family homes and they're not like little huts, you know, with a, a, a roof uh, where we hang out most of the day. Um, so they could, they could, you know, have some flexibility there. That was the, that was the, um, the role of the priests and kings, etc. Um, in the church, that's the role of bishops. So the Bible is the church's book. It's a communal book. But sometimes, especially when we, as we progress throughout history, new issues come up or maybe issues that aren't entirely new, but new manifestations of issues come up. And the church has to say, we have this deposit of faith. How do we then interact with whatever the problem that has come up is? And we, we have to apply it. And that, because the Bible is not always a, a, you know, a, an easy recipe book or a, or a manual with uh, detailed steps laid out, that takes uh, something a little bit more than scripture or tradition. And this is where the idea of reason comes in. And, uh, and one of my favorite passages in the scriptures is Acts 17, when St. Paul goes to Athens. And when he's there, he goes first to the synagogue, like always. And then um, some philosophers say, hey, we really are interested in hearing what you have to say. And they bring him to Mars Hill. Uh, that's where Paul is in the stained glass in the chapel. He's at, on Mars Hill. Um, which was the place, you know, where everybody would go and all the, all the learned men would go and discuss their uh, philosophies. So Paul goes, and when he gets there, he says, um, as I was coming in, I was looking around at everything, and I saw all these, uh, all these places of worship. You're very religious people. Um, the Greek there is a little bit of a double entendre. It could mean superstitious, too. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of patting them on the back and kind of jabbing them at the same time. You're very religious people. Um, but I saw this one altar and it said to an unknown God, let me tell you who that God is. And then he tells them the gospel story. He doesn't, um, get super specific. He keeps it kind of general. Um, but then he says, uh, that he's talking about this one God that exists. And he says in him, we live and move and have our being. And he says, even as, well, actually before he even says it, even as your own poets have said in him, we live and move and have our being. So he's quoting not Christian scripture, but pagan poetry to get his point across. Now, we know St. Paul is not saying paganism's cool and Christianity's cool. If you read Romans 1, it's pretty clear he doesn't appreciate a lot of paganism. He is making inroads, though. He's saying, hey, there's some truth in what you're saying. Let me show you where that truth leads you to. We have it here in the church. So I think from that story, and, and St. Augustine talks about this too. He talks about plundering the Egyptians. Uh, uh, the Israelites took the gold from the Egyptians. And he says, this is what the church does to the pagans. In that they have truth in their stories. And the church comes and we baptize those stories. Um, and we, we show how they are all 
we, we find the truth in them and we show how that truth is completed in, in the gospel. There is a church in Italy, I forgot which one it was, but uh, at the school where I taught, one of the art teachers took a trip to Italy and uh, with art teachers and they looked at all this sacred art. And in one of the churches, they have two walls and on each wall there's a painting. And on one of the, on the left side, I think the um, paintings are all of Greco-Roman myths. And on the other wall are Bible stories. And the point is that the ones across from each other are cor- correspond. Hmm. This story is fulfilled in that story. This story is fulfilled in that story. This story is fulfilled in that story. Hmm. Um, personally, I also think that the Gospel of Mark was based on Homer's Odyssey, but that's another conversation. <laughs> I'll drop that one here. Um, but it, as an, it would be in a similar vein of this. Retelling that story in a way that turns it on its head to make the gospel uh, uh, understandable to the Greek, Greco-Romans, who that story would have been part of their, um, part of their DNA. So, uh, so all truth is God's truth. Um, and so when we find it, uh, whether we find it in the church or outside the church, we know where it comes from and who it points back to. And it's important because reason is given to us by God. Right, uh, that's what sets humans apart from other animals. Is that we are we have a rational soul, um, whereas my dog certainly didn't. Um, the problem, however, for us is that reason uh, can be fallen, insofar as we are born into original sin. Uh, when we're born into original sin, our reason becomes somewhat darkened. So we don't naturally reason properly. This is why the pagans may have encountered some truth, but they would always kind of miss the point, you know. Um, Even the really good pagans like Plato and Socrates, um, who appear in a hymn of ours, which I like, uh, in the hymnal. I forgot what number it is, 290, 270, something like that. But anyways, um, but you read them and they still, you know, Plato goes and sacrifices to idols sometimes, and and you get a bunch of other uh, falsities mixed in with some, some solid truth. So we don't naturally reason properly, and, and I've talked about this before, I think, in sermons, but, but our, our concupiscence, our, our desire to sin, and our ignorance are related to each other. So the more we sin, the more our understanding is darkened, and the more darkened our understanding, the easier it is to sin until we get into this kind of spiral, downward spiral away from God. And so um, this is why there are other worldviews that aren't, Christianity, reason can lead to futility when it's not yielded by those who are regenerate. And even those of us who have been baptized and are regenerate uh, don't always use reason perfectly. Um, and we also have that other element of our desires often over overwhelming our reason. Um, so it's a two-edged sword. Reason can lead us to truth in many ways, um, and in other ways it can shroud the truth. So I would argue... That, uh, that when we're talking about scripture, tradition, and reason together, that there is an important order. Um, the legs of the stool aren't equal. They can't support the same amount of weight. Um, I think scripture has to always be first and ultimate, but we have to turn to the tradition second to guide our thinking on particular issues. Um, it's an interpretive aid. It gives us boundary markers. We stay in the fence, um, so to speak. Um, but then there are times where we need to apply our reason to specific issues. Um, 
those issues might include things like uh, like uh, life before birth or life, uh, the end of life, end of life care issues. Um, obviously, with technology uh, developing the way it is, you know, the church has to respond to things like in vitro fertilization. How how should a Christian think about that issue? That requires a lot of care and research, and we have to use reason based on what we have received in order to make uh, judgments about those things. Um, so anyway, so we, we're always going to be confronted with new things, and we'll have to think through those. Um, but, but we need to do it from a secure foundation of Scripture and tradition. Any um, questions or comments at this point? Because we'll get into worship, which won't last super long. Nothing? No news is good news. <laughs> One phrase that gets thrown around a lot in, um, in Anglican circles, and it's in the prayer book in a few places, is worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, which comes from uh, the Psalms, Psalm 96, I think. It's at the. It's one of the uh, opening sentences at um, at morning prayer. Mm-hmm. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and let the whole earth. I was testing you. Um, so I like the phrase. I like the phrase because uh, beauty and holiness are so closely associated together with worship. Our worship should be holy. Our worship should be beautiful. And there's a sense in which, and it's hard for us to see it uh, as finite creatures who are trapped in space and time, who are sinful, uh, but beauty and holiness somewhere uh, are conjoined. You know, that, that in some way what is beautiful is holy and what is holy is beautiful. What's true is good. What's good is true. You know, all these things in some ways uh, we're getting at who God is when we talk about that because God is the source of all these things, right? Um, we might, uh, you might have a beautiful person, but God is beauty. Uh, God is holiness, you know. Um, so, Anglican spirituality has always been, at least in theory, about incorporating beauty and holiness into our life together. We do this through our shared liturgies. Namely, the Mass and the Daily Office. Those are our two main liturgies, though we have others. And we seek then to conform our lives to the principles at the heart of those sacramental and liturgical rites. So, and actually, it's probably helpful to think about worship, because, or what that even means to define the term. Because we often use worship to mean we mean it in a very narrow sense, but the word actually has a wider range of meanings. So worship, uh, kind of if you trace it back, really just means worth-ship. It's, it's the rendering of someone what it is that they're due. So this could be to a deity, but it could be to another person. So in the older English versions of the prayer book, the husband pledges to worship his wife with his body. And he doesn't mean treat her like a like a demigod or a goddess or something like that, he means that he's going to give her the reverence and respect that she's due in his behavior toward her. Judges used to be called your worship, not because they were 
divine beings, but because they were due a certain amount of honor according to the law. So worship is rendering something or someone what they're due. Uh, and then, of course, we can think about this in terms of uh, the Latin terms are latria, hyperdulia, and dulia. Latria is the kind of worship you would only give to God himself because he's the creator. He is, he is due an infinite worship, right? There is no amount of worship that we can give God that we can say, check off the box and say, well, good, because he's due all of it, because he created us and has no dependence on us at all. He didn't need to create us. We're entirely dependent on him. There's dulia and hyperdulia then, which is the kind of respect and honor we give to other creatures. You know, it would be it would be wrong not to give your uh, to give your spouse a certain degree of respect and reverence. You know, um, and and this is where the church talks about the saints, right? Uh, we respect, we revere the saints, um, and Mary in particular. She receives what's called hyperdulia, the most honor any creature could receive. But she's still a creature; she's not God Himself. So there are differences here. So our first priority, really, everything about the, uh, about, the, about the spirituality of the church, and particularly the Anglican church, begins with the Mass. And we've talked about that before, so I won't belabor the point. But in the Mass, we have Christ's sacrifice. That's what we're giving to give God his due. And, I mean, we're not even the ones giving it. Christ himself is giving it, and he gives it through the church, and he includes us up into that sacrifice. So we get to participate in that, and we therefore render God what he's due. So the Mass really is the, um, is the center of everything. But prayer is intricately connected to the Mass. So to detour for a brief moment, prayer, uh, prayer we could define as the raising of the mind to God. We also think of it as a communicative act, right? I speak to God. I listen for God to speak to me. Communication, Herbert McCabe argues, he's a Dominican Roman Catholic theologian, communication requires a certain degree of equality. And he doesn't mean uh, people have to be of the same social standing or they have to be exactly the same in order to have that equality, but rather an equality of kind. Jude is three years old, um, but there is a sense of equality between us. Now, there's a sense in which I'm his parent and he's not a parent, you know, I tell him. Don't ask me why again. Just do what I say because I'm your parent. <laughs> At the same time, he's a human being who deserves a kind of uh, dignity and respect just by virtue of his being human, right? There is an equality there because we're both humans. Communication requires equality. Philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said that if a lion could speak, we could not understand him because we do not share the same conceptual or linguistic world. There's an inequality that exists between humanity and other species because we're the only animal that has a rational soul. Now, that doesn't mean we can treat animals however we want. It just means that I don't, my dog is not my son the way my son is my son. Um, and we see this clearly, I think, when we think about those human relationships where equality is denied to the other. So slavery being a really good example of that. Because slavery deprives the enslaved person of their voice, and in the mind of the slaver, that person ceases to be a person, they become a kind of chattel, right? Um, so, so McCabe would say, in a relationship between slave and master, the master might be nice to the slave, 
and, and by nice, we mean an absence of cruelty. He's not beating his slaves, you know. But he, he's nice. Maybe he gives them enough food and that they're fairly comfortable and a place to live and things like that. But, but there's still such a fundamental inequality between them that there is no meaningful relationship of love between master and slave. Just because they're nice doesn't mean that they love. It's kind of an American thing to associate niceness with love. Um, so this, this inequality element becomes exacerbated when we contemplate the disparity between creature and creator, right? How in the world could a creature, a created thing, be equal to the uncreated creator? There is a... I mean, even before we talk about sin, there's already uh, what seems like an impenetrable gap between the two. So what's, what's to happen? How, how, is, how is the problem solved? Um, and the answer to the question probably goes back to why God would create at all in the first place. Because like we said, he doesn't need to create. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He's perfectly complete within himself. But that because of his gratuitous love, God does create. He, he has this kind of outpouring and he sustains us and he makes us. And that's a very beautiful thing. And so the same God then who was willing to do that is in the mass willing to take us up into the divine life. Um, one of the prayers that's prayed when the wine and the water are poured together in the chalice is by the mingling of this water and, the wine, and this wine, may we come to share in the divinity of he who humbled himself to share our humanity. So we want to be lifted up into the divine life. So McCabe says prayer is possible because of the mass. When God looks at us, he, it, we're not a creature standing before a creator. We're a son standing before a father. And it's a beautiful picture. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful thing that we have this great privilege. So prayer is only possible because of the mystery of the mass in which we are made sons. And so because of we're his sons, we lift our minds up to God. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. So we do these liturgical and sacramental acts together, uh, whether that's in person through the mass or the daily office, or even when we're at home, during the week and we pray the daily office, there's a sense in which we are, because of common prayer, still praying together as the church, which is why all the, there's a lot of we's in the, uh, in the daily office that you still say even if you're by yourself because you're not just by yourself. In fact, even the prayer of St. Chrysostom at the end, you know, where two or three are gathered together. Well, who are you gathered with? The whole company of heaven, just like in the, in the Eucharistic prayer. Um, so uh, there's a part of the daily office that I love at the end, um, that we show forth thy praise, this is the prayer of thanksgiving at the end, that we show forth thy praise not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. And I like that line so much because it really is the heart of the matter. We do these liturgical expressions, and the liturgical expressions train us. They mold us. They shape us. They form us. They work on us even when we're not aware of it. And in the sacraments, we receive tangible grace, the body and blood of Christ given for you. But all this is, is 
is not just something we do to check off boxes. We do it precisely so that we can pursue the beauty of holiness more. So that we become that thing that we are imitating liturgically in our lives. So the sacrifice of Christ, which is at the center of the Mass, which is the thing that binds our prayers together and makes our prayers possible at all, that the, the same cross that makes us a member of the church, is the thing that becomes the template for how we should then live outside of the church. When we leave the Mass, we become the sacrifice. Here we offer unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a holy, living, and reasonable sacrifice. So the goal is that our worship, both public and private, though there's no such thing as private worship because all of our worship is occurring in the context of the church, all of our worship and our lives, both corporately as the church community, but also individually as members of the church in our various vocations and callings, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, siblings, uh, plumbers, teachers, (laughs) candlestick makers, um, that all of us would be participating with one another so that we become a beautiful harmony and our actions then match our worship. So it's never about rote, you know, going through the motions. This is one of the sins of Israel. They would do the, you know, rituals and then they would go out and exploit the poor or whatever. And, you know, God has a, a number of things to say about that, empty ritualism. But the rituals rather give us the power and the imagination to apply this in our own lives, in our own contexts. And so that really is the goal, a beautiful harmony. We are a symphony as the church, and each of us plays our own part in that symphony. Um, Or, to borrow from Paul, uh, we are the body, and each of us are parts of that body, and we're called to, uh, you know, the foot is not the hand, but we are part of the same body, and the body is only healthy when all the parts are doing their jobs. And so as the church, uh, we, that's what we are about. So we think through theology. It's an important thing to do, scripture, tradition, and reason. But it's not unconnected to our worship. The best theologians, really the only theologians, are people who are true worshipers. And true worshipers are true theologians. Uh, not academics in an ivory tower somewhere who don't ever go to a, a church or a parish, um, which there are a number of those. But it's it's people in the church who are the theologians. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's it for tonight. I did have a question. Yes. The previous section.